and Mephibosheth. One day, David asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man called Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? the king asked. Yes, I am, sir, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. In Lodibar, Ziba told him, at the home of Maker, the son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Maker's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask today that you'll open up this amazing passage of Scripture, that we might understand the incredible depth of grace and the grace that you express towards us through our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. I found a wonderful story this week about a, name, a man named Fiorello Lagardia, and he was the mayor of New York City during World War II and, and through the Great Depression. And uh, he was called the little flower by the adoring New Yorkers because he only stood five foot four and he always wore a carnation in the lapel of his jacket and he had a very flamboyant hat as well. And he was a really colourful kind of character because he used to ride around on the back of fire engines and go see the excitement. He would go on raids with the police. 
he would take entire orphanages out to, bar to, to baseball games. And when the newspapers were on strike on a Sunday, he would read the comics over the radio so the kids could hear them. Anyway, one bitterly cold night in January 1935, the mayor turned out at night court that served the poorest ward of New York City. He dismissed the judge and he took the bench himself. Within a few minutes, a, a tattered old woman was brought before him and she had been, been charged with stealing a loaf of bread. So she tells Lagardia, she says, that her daughter's husband has deserted her, her daughter is sick, and her two grandchildren are starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen, he refused to drop the charges. He said this, he said, it's a real bad neighborhood, Your Honor. She's got to be punished so that people will learn a lesson. So Lagardia, he sighs, a big sigh. He turns to the woman, he says, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. The fine is $10 or 10 days in jail. As he's doing that, as he's pronouncing, pronouncing that sentence, he reaches into his pocket. He takes out his wallet and he takes out $10. He tosses that into his hat. And here he says, here's the $10 fine, which I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that a grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, the New York papers, it was all over the place. This dear old lady had been given $47.50, which is a lot of money back then. That had been turned over to this bewildered old woman who'd stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount had been contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner. Some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and the New York City policeman, each of whom had given 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, and they gave the mayor a standing ovation. I think that is a wonderful, wonderful story of grace. That's the essence of grace because it recognizes our wretched condition, it pays our debt, and it gives us more than we ever could have imagined. That is a story of grace. And no wonder grace is called amazing. So I think that's, that's one of the clearest pictures I've, I've read in the newspaper ever about grace. But this picture which was read for us about the story of David and Mephibosheth by Dot this morning, is one of the clearest pictures in the Bible of grace that we can look at. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to understand a little bit more about this amazing grace. So my first point this morning is, is that amazing grace is extended. And what's the reason for this grace being extended to Mephibosheth? Well, in the first verse, it says, David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness is also translated goodness, mercy, favor, and loving kindness. It is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word grace. And grace is often defined as the unmerited love and favor of God towards the undeserving. Grace is one person accepting another person in a positive manner in spite of that first person's unworthiness. And David, he desires to show grace to a member of Saul's family. The amazing thing here is that in those days, 
when a new king assumed power, the next thing he would do is destroy utterly the family of the king that was there previously. And the reason he would do that is to stop rebellion by this particular family. So David has the right to execute judgment, but instead he chooses to demonstrate grace. David does this, does this not because the house of Saul deserved it, because Saul was his enemy. Saul wanted to kill him. He does this because of his relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. David loved Jonathan. It was a beautiful relationship. Yeah, he loved him you know, just like one brother would love another one. And David had made promises both to, to Jonathan and Saul that he would not totally destroy their offspring. He'd said that earlier on. So grace is extended because of another person. And no wonder this is called amazing. God also extends grace to all the members of Adam's family. Are we not the children of Adam? No, we are, in fact, aren't we? We don't deserve God's grace, His love, or His mercy. In fact, if we, if we received what we deserved, well, the wages of sin is death. No, punishment, hell, that's what belongs to us. We ought to be utterly rejected by God. Yet God extends His amazing grace. Why? Because of another. Because of another person. God reaches out to the fallen, depraved sinners. Why? Because God loves His Son, Jesus. Our Messiah, our Saviour. Neither you and I can, can you know, do anything to merit God's love. But because of another, because of Jesus, we can experience God's grace. And that's why it's called amazing. Because of another person, we experience grace. So that's the reason for grace. But look at the reach of grace. When David decides to extend grace, he does so without any limits. He says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Anyone? Anyone at all? The house of Saul was the house of his predecessor, the house of his enemy. I said that a moment ago. But David places no limits on his grace. He's willing to extend that grace to any members of the household of Saul. And I think that's the key word in there, is that word any. Is there anyone left? Anyone. So he's not saying, you know, someone who meets a particular kind of criteria, but anyone who's part of the, of, of the family of Saul is a candidate for David's grace. And I thank God that the, that the Lord's grace knows no boundaries whatsoever. It extends to all people, regardless of their past, regardless of their race, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their deeds. God doesn't reach out to save the righteous. God reaches out to save the sinners. God extends His grace to whoever wants to receive it. To whosoever will. All you've got to do to receive God's grace is receive it. How hard is that? Praise God. There are no limits to who can come to God. God is grace, God's grace is extended to whoever wants to receive it. And that's how you and I got in, by the way. If you are lost, that's how you will get in. Because no one deserves it, but anyone can have it. That's what makes grace so amazing. But have a look at the response now. The response of this grace. David discovers that one of Jonathan's sons is still living. He also hears the news that this man is, is crippled. Yet the response of grace is, is not to ask, you know, what kind of a man is Mephibosheth? He doesn't ask that. 
Grace no longer concerns itself with the man's background, his surroundings, his abilities, or his appearance. He simply says, where is he? That's the only question he asks. Not what kind of person is he, where is he? That's all he wants to know. I'm not concerned about his condition. Says David, I want him just like he is. That's what's so amazing about the grace of God. God doesn't, doesn't look at us and concern himself with our crippled spiritual condition. No, he looks at us and he, and, he, and he opens the eyes of grace. He sees us exactly as we are. He knows all about our past. He knows about all our, our problems. He knows about our potential as well. But he draws us to himself anyway. When grace fixes its eyes on the crippled sons of Adam's race, it cares for nothing else except for calling us to himself. No wonder grace is called amazing. But let's have a look how this grace is embraced. My second point. We might move along for another point there with the... Uh... It's happening? Yeah? Okay, good. For a moment, I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Mephibosheth. Try and say Mephibosheth for starters. And put yourself then in his shoes. He's one of the few remaining members of the household of Saul. He's living in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. It's like we could say to someone, you know, oh, you live in, in western New South Wales, you're a poor blighter. There's nothing there, right? The river's gone, the pasture's gone. That's where he's living, in the desert someplace. And, he's, and, and, and Mephibosheth, he's probably living each day in fear of his life. He's afraid because King David will, well, King David has the right now to execute him because he's the new king. So he'd be fearful, wouldn't he? He's no doubt a poor man. I mean, he's a cripple. He's no longer got access to anything. He's living in a place where there's no pasture, some drought-stricken place. He doesn't have access to the, to the, to the wealth or the, or the lands of his family. His father's been killed in battle. When the news comes, you know, that his father had been killed in battle, what happens is that his nurse, when he's about five years old, picks him up, runs away, and drops him. And in the process, he breaks both his feet. So he's crippled for the rest of his life. And all of his life, he's imagining, oh, what's going to happen when David finds me? So he lives in fear. He lives in misery every day. And then one day it happens. I can imagine there'll be the sounds of horses outside the, uh, his, his hut that he's living in, in this little, this little place called Lodabar. There's a knock on the door and men come from Jerusalem. The king wants to see you. Oh, you can imagine trembling in your boots. With a fearful heart, you gather your meager possessions and your, and your set of crutches and you leave with the guards to go and see the man you never wanted to see. And after a while, you arrive in the king's palace and you're carried into the king's presence and when he arrives there, nothing is like he imagines. Nothing whatsoever. Mephibosheth, he enters into the presence of grace and notice how he embraces this. Have a look at your Bible at, at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. So what does Mephibosheth do? He bows down to David. He comes into David's presence with a humble heart. He's aware. He, Mephibosheth, is a descendant of Saul. He knows that probably this is my last day. He deserves nothing else but judgment from the king. So he humbles himself in the presence of David. But then that humble heart moves on to being an incredibly happy heart. David says, Mephibosheth. 
I was meditating on this passage of scripture and I was going like, show me what you see, Lord. What, what, what happened there? He calls Mephibosheth by his name. He knows precisely who he is. And I think when David looks and he sees Mephibosheth, who would he have seen? He would have seen the image of Jonathan in his face. He would have gone like, oh man, you're a chip off the old block. Mephibosheth. He would have said it with love, with love for his father, Jonathan. And amazingly, Mephibosheth experiences incredible tenderness. He hears David call his name, and then to his amazement, David speaks peace to his heart. He hears the king as he promises restoration of all the wealth and the glory that once belonged to the family of Saul. And then the icing on the cake, David promises Mephibosheth, he's going to have a place at the king's table. So with a happy heart, Mephibosheth embraces the treasures of grace. But he also does it with an honest heart. Have a look at verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And Mephibosheth is just overwhelmed by the grace that he's just received. He acknowledges that he's, he's undeserving of love and mercy, but grace has been extended and it's been embraced and nothing will ever again be the same in Mephibosheth's life. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a picture here of us when we experience the grace of God. When the king calls us for the first time, there's got to be conviction. That's the movement of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I remember when the Holy Spirit moved in my heart for the first time. I was convicted of my sin. I knew that I deserved to go to hell. I knew that I, I deserved nothing at all from my God. And yet... The call came, and it cannot be denied. And you've got to fall down before God in humility and reverence and in worship. And then the king speaks. King Jesus speaks. He calls you by your name. And he reveals the fact that grace has turned away his wrath. He opens his heart and his heaven, and that grace is offered to restore us. And he restores to us every single thing that sin has taken away from us. How good is that? We are restored to our relationship with God, our Father. We can call Him our Father from now on. And all the wonders of eternity are there before us. That is truly overwhelming. Have you experienced that? That is truly overwhelming. Think back and remember the day when you experienced that for the first time. The Spirit of God touching your heart. The fear you have of God. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning. That's the first step. You're like, oh man, I'm... I know who I am now in His presence and I deserve nothing. And yet He loves you and He speaks peace to your soul. Remember that you came to God with nothing and you left with everything. I've said it to you before. I remember the day when I got down to my knees and I accepted Jesus as my Savior and as my Lord. And when I stood up, I felt like I was floating off the ground. The burden of sin had been removed off my shoulders. It was utterly gone. I felt tall. Everything, the colors that I saw around me were so intense and vibrant. I thought like, oh, I'm a new person. Praise God. That's grace. It's an incredible blessing. What a great, wonderful, matchless Savior we have. And when grace is embraced, everything changes. No wonder grace is called amazing. Well, let's have a look a little bit further. Let's look at another point. The amazing grace is now expanded. When Mephibosheth came to David, he didn't get what he deserved. He received grace. And when he received grace, he also received more blessing than he ever could have imagined. Grace was expanded. 
Notice what grace provided to Mephibosheth and also provides to you and me. Grace provides for Mephibosheth a future, first of all. In Lodabar, the place of no pasture, the drought, the desert, the nothingness, he had nothing. He was poor. He was an outcast. He was a fugitive. He had no help. He had no hope. And he had no prospects for the future. All he has is a pair of crutches and nothing else. But when he meets grace, everything changes. All of his present needs are going to be met. His future is secured. He's still a cripple, but now all of a sudden he has a whole bunch of staff that are going to run his property for him and reap the harvest on his behalf. The wealth is coming back to his family again. That's all secured. Grace gave him something that he could never have had in Lodabar. Grace gave him the plenty of a king. How amazing is that? The same is true for us when we've experienced grace ourselves. In Adam, our place of Lodabar, our place of no pasture, our place of dryness and desert and, and nothingness, we are outcasts. We're headed for hell, that's true. We are fugitives. We're running for our lives from a holy God who possesses the right and the power to send us into eternity without Him. But when grace is extended and embraced, everything changes. What sin could never give us becomes ours in Jesus. For the first time, there's hope and there's a future. We're promised security. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, I know that this physical body of mine is going to stop unless the Lord returns soon. But the person who inhabits this physical body shall never perish. I have eternal life. And one day I'm going to get a resurrection body. No more glasses, no more pain, no more nothing of that stuff. Praise God, bring it on. So we've got security and we're promised a home in heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, says Jesus. Well, he's been away for a while. It must be pretty amazing. Hey, that's coming for us. We promised that our needs will be met. All of our needs will be met according to his riches in glory. Well, I'd like to draw a few checks on that one. We have promised his presence all the way home to heaven. Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he says to his disciples. That's who we are as well. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Every step of the journey, he's walking beside us. That's what grace gives to all the members of the family who will embrace it. No wonder it's called amazing. But grace not only provides a future, grace also provides a family. Mephibosheth is now adopted out of Saul's family and into David's family. Grace gave him something that he didn't have before and now it's extended to him. Mephibosheth was alone, but now Mephibosheth has a family. Every day he lives... Mephibosheth is reminded by his surroundings and by the presence of the king that he's a recipient of grace. He's there because of the grace of the king. So when, when a human being, when, when we, you and I, when we respond to the call of grace and when we're saved, we are adopted into the family of God. God's now our father. How good is that? We're taken out of the family of Adam, which is a doomed race, and we are placed into the family of Christ. Amazing. We are now destined for life. Grace takes us from our low debar, brings us into the family of God. Let's never forget how good our God is to us. So we're provided with a family. Well, Mephibosheth was also provided with fulfillment because Mephibosheth was a nobody living in the desert. 
But now he becomes a somebody and he's in a household full of somebodies. Can you imagine sitting around at David's table? There's Absalom, his son, handsome looking. You know? There are David's other sons, David's beautiful wives and his daughters. There's Joab, the general, proud and strong. There are the princes, the princesses, the soldiers, the statesmen, the men of wealth, the men of power. All of them take their place at the table of King David. But wait, because as the family gathers, everyone's sitting there and there's this bloke that takes a little bit longer to get down the hallway. You hear the stump of his crutches and the dragging of his feet. It's Mephibosheth. And he takes his place at the king's table with all the rights and all the privileges of all the rest. And when he takes his seat at the table, the tablecloth falls across his waist. He looks just like the rest of them. Dressed in all the finery of the family of the king. Grace took a nobody from nowhere and made him a child of the king. Brothers and sisters, that is the power. That is the amazement of grace. It takes a lost person. It changes that person to someone, changes him completely and gives him a seat at the Lord's table. That's you. That's me. It puts us on even footing with all of the saints of God. How good is that? You have a new position. You're not beneath Abraham or Moses or the apostles or any other saint of God. You're a child of God. You're seated at his table. His grace has taken care of your past and all of your infirmities. That's the power of grace. And no wonder it's called amazing. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his saving grace. Have you been fetched by the saving grace of God? Has he called you? by name because if he's done so you are part of his family your past has been taken care of you've been given a future and there's a day coming brothers and sisters when we will see him face to face we will know him as he is and we'll be known as we are to be just like Jesus that's grace would you pray with me Father, we want to say thank you for your incredible grace towards each one of us. We deserve nothing and yet you gave us everything. Thank you that we are now back in the family. Thank you, Father, that we have a future and a hope. And it's all going to be fulfilled. Jesus is coming back for his church. That's each one of us. Oh, God, we are looking forward to the day when we will see you face to face. We bring it on, Lord Jesus. Come soon, we ask, in your name.